0: monster brothers it's Rob from the down and heat podcast Uh, I really enjoyed the rat folk episode and kudos to you for coming up with a uh, imaginative solution to have a tandem podcast on anchor the blood rat uh, idea was really thematic I enjoyed that and the for the rat king with three heads do you envision the three heads sharing the same intellect Where maybe they speak all in unison, but perhaps in different pitches, or maybe even discordant? Or do you see them having their one intellect compartmentalized into three separate heads? Or would each head have its own personality and separate intellect? Thanks for the podcast. Hope you keep doing some of these. Thanks.
1: Thanks for the callin', Rob. That's a great question. I think on my Rat King, I would have the three heads have independent thinking. The reasoning for that is that there was a move on my list that had the Rat King doing three different things at the same time. In that case, I would probably have the center head control the torso and legs, and each of the other two heads controlling only the arm on their side of the body, and I would make that center head sort of the boss they're all quite intelligent, but that center head is the final say on everything. and maybe has enough of a neck that it could swivel and bite the other two if they get out of line. Hey Logan, what do you think about trolls? Holy petrified monsters, Ray! That is an amazing question. I have been a crazy troll boy since long before I picked up my first D&D book in the late 70s. Probably my first encounter with trolls was Billy Goat's Gruff. After that, my very favorite memories from way back concerning trolls have to do with a book called Dolaire's Trolls. That thing was amazing. It had the most charming illustrations. Everything from ten-headed trolls to trollops with their hooves and tails and all sorts of great monsters and mayhem going on in that book. And they were so wonderfully simple you could project your own imagination onto them very easily. I also really loved the art of John Bauer. If you look up his paintings you'll instantly understand why I loved trolls early on. Those illustrations led me to a lot of folk tales that helped me develop my fascination with with the creatures from beyond. Then of course there's the trolls from Tolkien in Dungeons and Dragons. I really preferred the troll from The Hobbit over the ones that appear later in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I like the idea of trolls that are swept up in riddle games and petrified because of their own foolishness. (laughs) That really reflects the nature of trolls from folklore and that's what I love. The Dungeons and Dragons trolls. Are really well constructed and they're very interesting monsters for what they are. I do feel sometimes that there's a consequence for taking what was a class of creature with a multitude of forms and narrowing it down to a single creature type. I like trolls for what they are in Dungeons and Dragons and have later been in other games since then. I sometimes want to break it back open into a a more wide-ranging and fantastical form. I'm always going to see trolls as sort of a manifestation of the wild's response to human folly, those dangerous games, and the dispensing of magical justice on foolish human beings. What about you, Ray? What do you think about trolls?
2: Yeah, like you, I think my first exposure to trolls was the Three Billy Goats Gruff as well. I had a great grandmother and grandmother both who liked to read fairy tales to me, so that was really formative. And I used to have a story record that was a gentleman telling the story of the Three Billy Goats Gruff, and he had a guitar and he did voices, and it was awesome. I still remember the goats would sing. Uh, let's see, ba. Ba, ba, ba. I smell something very sweet, sweet, sweet Right up there upon the hill, hill, hill Lovely grass to eat It's green and sweet And then the troll sounded kind of Russian And he'd be like The bigger the goat The bigger the meal The bigger the meal The better I feel Hey! <laughs> <laughs> and just thinking about that made me want to hear it again. So through the magic of the internet, I went to YouTube and I found it. So we'll put that in the show notes if it's something you might want to play for your kids. Um, if any listener out there, it's just awesome. I also like your point about how D&D trolls and Tolkien's trolls are quite different from folkloric trolls. So let's talk about that for a minute. The D&D troll absolutely comes from one source, and I recognized it immediately when I read it as a kid. It's Poole Anderson's Three Hearts and Three Lions. There's a chapter in that where the characters fight a troll, and it's um, it has regeneration, um, it can only hurt, really be hurt by fire, and it has that gooey, long-nosed, gibbering uh, look to it. Through the description that you recognize in D and D, so I'm sure that's where the D and D troll came from, and it's quite different from folkloric trolls. I'm not sure where Paul Anderson got that idea. Um, He is very steeped in Norse mythology, Paul Anderson, so um, maybe he pulled that from some earlier source. But to me, it seems wholly original. Uh, and I'm not sure there's a lot to say about D&D trolls. They kind of are what they are. And I I agree, they're not super exciting um, after the first time you fight one, you know, uh, and have to learn that trick about uh, using fire to keep them from regenerating and all that. Tolkien's trolls, I agree, the ones from The Hobbit are more interesting. They're more uh, like gross humanoids. They argue with each other. Um, that whole bit of turning to stone in the sunlight makes them really interesting. Uh, but then later, of course, in Lord of the Rings they're just sort of like a heavy army unit and uh when you see them in Peter Jackson's movies, you know, I think he did a pretty good job of portraying them. They're not very intelligent uh and they're just big brutes, you know, just muscle. And that's not very interesting either. One interesting thing to note is in the Lord of the Rings, specifically in The Fellowship of the Ring in the chapters on khazad when they're in the Chamber of Mazarbul and the troll shows up. Tolkien mentions that it has a foot without toes, a bit like an elephant, and I thought that's interesting. Not many people have picked up on that in the way that they draw trolls. Uh, So having made those distinctions, Logan, let's just focus on folkloric trolls, because I think... Uh, everybody knows what a D&D troll is like, and there's not much to say about that, and everybody knows what uh, Tolkien's trolls are like, I think, from the Lord of the Rings movies, and there's not much to say about those either. Um, they're just big, you know, brutish things, and uh, they could be an ogre or a troll or a, a hill giant or whatever. It's all kind of the same thing, isn't it? Let's talk about folkloric trolls. I too have had uh, some books over my lifetime, and I can't find them uh, right now because they're you know they're long gone in physical form, and I look for them on the web, uh, but couldn't find the references. But there was one that uh, depicted trolls as small creatures, you know, kind of hairy um, and gross, and they were all over a house, you know, and making messes and just kind of um, just being a general nuisance in a kitchen, and that was kind of an uh, the illustrations were. They had kind of a Norse feel to them, or kind of a Nordic feel to them. Uh, and I wonder if that's probably where the whole like troll doll uh, idea comes from. The little naked trolls with their crazy hair. Um, <laughs> you know, I thought those were interesting. That would be kind of an interesting uh, monster to make, right? Uh, some kind of pygmy troll with uh, really shockingly disarrayed and colored hair. I don't really know much about folkloric trolls beyond that. What what do you know about it? Um, what, What can you tell me about folkloric
1: trolls? Trolls in folklore are amazing. They tend to be really earthy and grotesque, unlike many of their counterparts around the world. But they can be beautiful too. In fact, if you can get one to marry you, its tail will fall off. They can range in size from teeny tiny things like the troll dolls, for example, or they can be as large as a mountain. One thing that's really cool about them is they're very inquisitive and prone to getting caught in conversations. They love a good game of riddles. In fact, there really are stories about trolls that get turned to stone because they don't notice the sun is coming up while they're trying to figure out a riddle.
2: Yeah, that's super cool. I like this idea of trolls as kind of nature spirits, or at least very earthy in their aspect. It reminds me there are two, uh, at least two, real life trolls that I want to draw your attention to. One is by the artist Thomas Dambo. He's a Danish artist, and he built a wooden troll called Isaac Heartstone in Breckenridge, which I believe was in Colorado. It's a wonderful, wonderful sculpture. Um, Unfortunately, it got into a little bit of a dispute um, with the town. I don't remember what the uh, uproar was exactly, but they dismantled it. Uh, Supposedly, it got moved to someplace else, or it's getting moved to someplace else, but you can still find really neat pictures of it on the Internet. Um, Just Google the Breckenridge Troll. Another one is a longstanding stone troll uh, that was carved under a bridge in Fremont, Oregon. And you can Google the Fremont Troll as well and get a picture of it. But they're both uh, quote-unquote life-size trolls. I mean, they're huge. Um, The Breckenridge Troll is made out of wood, uh, rough wood and twigs and such. And he's stacking stones, which I think is really amusing and cool. So he has a giant pile of stones in front of him. And then all around him are little stacks of stones that people who've come to visit him have made. The uh, Fremont Troll seems to be coming out of the earth, Um, whereas the Breckenridge Troll is a full figure. The Fremont Troll, the stone one, uh, is just kind of torso only. Um, So you get these two arms, two huge arms with one arm kind of reaching out at you and this stony, weird gaze. Uh, It's a little creepy and a little cool at the same time, but it looks almost as if he's crawling out of the stone. Um, So those are two neat visuals to look up. I wish I could show them to you through the podcast. I did just a little bit of research. Um, I think most people know that trolls come from Nordic mythology, uh, Scandinavian folklore. And I didn't know this, but originally the troll was a term just applied to the Jatnar, the ice giants of old. They seem to have some common characteristics. Trolls dwell in mountains, caves, and under the occasional bridge. Um, So they're associated with nature and particularly with stone there's a bit of the prose that describes a meeting between a female troll and the poet Bragi, and it goes like this Trolls call me moon of dwelling Rungnir, giant's wealth sucker, storm sun's bale, Cirrus's friendly companion, guardian of corpse fjord, swallower of heaven wheel. What is a troll other than that? And uh, I don't know how well you could decode that. It's certainly a bit of a riddle to me, but it does describe a troll with an insatiable appetite, which seems to be inherent uh, of all trolls in literature. They eat stone, livestock, humans, and generally anything they can get their hands on. Another thing they seem to have in common is the way they're defeated. Quite often, uh, the stories of trolls involve outsmarting them. And so they seem to be... Creatures that one would get into a conversation with um, and that they work first through intimidation and, uh, you know, they don't just attack. They have thoughts to share or demands to make or ultimatums to express or um, invitations to riddle. And that's completely unlike the D&D troll, which I think is quite interesting that none of that really poured it over into D&D. And I think it's interesting that <laughs> trolls seem to want to uh, or seem to gravitate toward getting involved in competitions that uh, expose their weakness. So if they're defeated, for instance, by being outwitted, then why would they get into a competition of wits? (laughs) I think that's a that's a funny aspect to them. Actually, it's a neat little characteristic that they um, almost hand you the opportunity to beat them if you're clever enough.
1: I think a common theme in a lot of these stories is that the troll has had a lot of success with these tactics before. For example, there's one story I know where there are three brothers and the two older brothers go to chop wood and a troll comes out of the woods and says, I'll kill you if you chop my wood and they go running off and this third brother shows up with a round of cheese When the troll threatens him, he pulls out the round of cheese, and the troll says, well, what's that? He says, it's a stone, and he squeezes it until the wave drips out of it. And the troll's so shocked, he thinks he's squeezing a a stone so hard that the juice is pouring out. (laughs) So he gets the troll to help him chop the wood, and and the story continues all these different ways that he tricks the troll. Then there's a... and several others where they're used to winning riddle contests and tests of strength and these sorts of things, I think that not only can you say that they are representing challenges that the hero is brave enough or wise enough to overcome, but you might also think of it in terms of these are ancient creatures that have had their way for centuries and modern human beings are something new to them so they're they're not really ready for our wit and our prowess. We had a lot of snow come down recently about a foot and a half on our little house in the country and my wife and I decided to go for a walk. As we were trudging around through the snow I was looking at the trees and guess what I saw? Trolls. I saw trolls everywhere. Guess what happens when you dump a ton of snow on those pointy evergreen trees? They bend over. The tippy point loops over and becomes what looks like a long nose. And the shaggy needles look like a beard coming out from underneath of that. Everywhere I looked I was seeing these shapes that looked just like John Bauer trolls.
2: Thank you for sharing that Logan. That's a really compelling image. Man, I miss snow. I uh I know many of you're going to roll your eyes at me at this point, but I mi- I moved to San Diego 11 years ago and I don't get to see winter and snow much anymore and I miss all the good things about it. Of course I don't miss um, you know, scraping my car windshield and getting up in the cold and living in it for months at a time. But, uh, you know, winter can be awesome. And I think your observation speaks to this idea that trolls and other creatures um, were originally things that people saw in nature. It's a little bit like finding shapes in clouds. We tend to anthropomorphize or to um, embed nature with living uh, you know, fantastical creatures. And I think that's a really cool thing. Do you have any ideas for how you would use trolls in gaming? Is there any particular way that you have yet to explore or have explored that worked out really well that you want to share?
1: I want every troll that shows up in a game that I'm running to be a trial all unto itself and then have a huge payoff for that. What you'll see in a lot of stories is that The trolls have gold and silver or there's shelter to be won or food to be gotten or there's some sort of thing that the, the hero or the family or the wanderer absolutely needs or desires or can thrive because of. And helping the troll or defeating the troll winds up getting them that thing that they really want most of all. I want my trolls to be the physical embodiment of the dungeon move, present riches at a price. For example, I might have a party that's looking for a MacGuffin. Let's just call it a large magic key. Maybe they are told that it's on an island in the middle of a lake. So they row out to this island, which then rises up and reveals itself to be a massive stone troll, just towering over the boat. And it says, I'm not a place, but you can always go to me. Even when I'm in front of you, I'm behind you. What am I? And if the party somehow lands on the answer friend, the troll might say, Excellent. Now, friend, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. And when the troll turns in the water so that his back is facing the boat, there's the key lodged in his back. I'm super excited to hear what you would do with trolls, Ray. Let's hear how you would use them in your games.
2: Well, trolls seem to me like monsters that don't really play well with other monsters. So you're often encountering them um, alone or in pairs or small groups, but trolls only. And they're pretty tough customers, so they often end up being a low-level party's first boss fight. At the very least, it's never an inc- inconsequential encounter And I like this idea of putting more negotiation into it, making them a bit more folkloric and spirits of nature than the typical D&D model. I can think of two times that I've used them, one in each context. Um, The D&D style of troll I often use as a swamp troll, and I'll wait till a party's camped at night and have this horrendous hooting noise break out around them and and have a pair of trolls calling to each other. So all they can hear is this weird hooting like a giant deranged owl and underbrush crackling and things like that until eventually the trolls show up right at the edge of their uh, campfire light if they have a campfire going. Of course, the fact that they have a fire going makes things easier for them, but um, I usually give the trolls projectile vomiting, which makes it tougher as well. <laughs> and it makes for a pretty cool fight. Um recently in the other kind of context, a more folkloric style troll, I ran the wind troll from your own Swordbreaker zine. Uh oh shoot, I'm going to forget the issue number. It might be three or four where you did one about skyships that was super cool and uh, I had a party on a ship run into a wind troll that kept shoving the ship around and turning it in crazy directions and almost wrecked the ship before they got rid of it and basically it was just playing around it demanded a riddle from them and uh, it was like a big surly petulant child and I enjoyed that too I think the next time I introduce a troll I'm really going to lean on this idea that they are a guardian of a place and that's why they're often associated with bridges uh, that it's uh, symbolic of something that they are guarding and particularly a passage or access to something that they are guarding and I want to I want to play more with that idea maybe in uh, a setting like dolmenwood which is a fairy tale forest like setting That is devised by Gavin uh, Norman, who wrote the BX Essentials line and, of course, the uh, zine uh, Wormskin, which is devoted to Dolman Wood. So I like that idea. I also ran across a blog the other day that listed a whole bunch of trolls and bridges, and I will link that in the show notes. It was
1: very cool. Yeah, Wormskin is a great zine. I liked your idea of the trolls at the edge of the campfire light in the swamp. Makes me think of that uh, comic book man thing, which I just loved as a kid. Strange lumbering beast that shows up. <laughs> Did you see the movie Troll Hunter? That's another great place to find images of trolls. No matter what you think of the film as a whole, the the image of those two-headed trolls and giant trolls. They're just, it's so great. And there's a troll under a bridge there too, which leads me to your idea of having them be obstructions on the path to one's destination. I think that's a really excellent way to use them. I think it's time for us to talk about our variant trolls. You went first last time, so I'll pitch first. I call this one The troll's lovely daughter. It's straight out of folklore. She appears when time is short, and the traveler is eager to move on. At first sight, she looks like an old woman lying in a ditch. Upon closer inspection, her nose is inhumanly large. She has a mouth full of sharp finger-length teeth, and a tail like a cow's can be seen pinned under one leg. The frightful creature will wail and cry, telling the adventurer that she's fallen ill, and her mother is looking for her the hero will hear a voice of a woman in the distance fussing over her lovely daughter who is missing. The troll in the ditch will ask for the sap of seven trees that are scattered throughout the woods. The first character to commit to helping her will be rewarded with one re-roll per session for which they need to describe how the elements shift to help them. Her instinct would be, test the compassion of those in a hurry. Moves are, Fill their minds with the desperate call of a parent. Confuse the path. Influence a companion animal. I would love to put a creature like this in the middle of a desperate situation, causing the characters some moral dilemma. So, Ray, tell me about your variation.
2: That's a really cool idea and a really good story hook. Despite... Wanting to talk about folklore trolls at the outset of this, when I went to make a variant of a troll, my mind actually went back to D&D style trolls, and that's because of a game I'm playing with some friends where we use Dungeon World Rules and explore a BX module. So we're kind of mashing the two together, and it's been going super well. We were traveling through a desert and something was stalking us. It turned out to be a tall, thin, hook-nosed sort of thing, and... I referred to it as a hook-nosed sand troll just off the cuff. We didn't really know much about the creature. And we did not did not end up really encountering it uh, in a physical way. It was herding us or chasing us into this lost city. And so we saw them but didn't actually fight them or talk to them or anything. It left me wondering, what is a hook-nosed sand troll? And so I decided to write that up. The desert in our story used to be a forest many, many years ago. The elves lived there, but were driven out as the desert encroached on the forest and took over larger and larger areas of land. So I want the sand-nosed hook trolls to be descendants of the trolls from that time when the land was forested. But they are now desiccated, voiceless, tall and thin, with tough parchment-like skin and whipcord muscles. They are called... Uh, colloquially, the sandstalkers, because they gather in numbers around interlopers. The elves sometimes call them the guardians because their instinct is to tend the forest. They can still see the spirits of the trees that were there before. So to them, as they walk through the desert, they're actually walking through um, a phantasmal forest. And interlopers sort of remind them of reality. So they don't like them. They they cause a disruption in their uh, sort of spirit world, so they try to drive them off. Uh, they So they gather in numbers around interlopers. Uh, they're often seen stalking in the distance because they're so tall and thin. You can kind of see them in the distance, and they'll walk in any weather uh, because of their tough skin. They are used to being out in sandstorms. And uh, I think of them as primarily nocturnal, so they'll be seen mostly at dusk and dawn. And they have a big, wide, webbed feet for walking on top of the dunes. As for stats, I would just use whatever stats uh, from whatever system you're working with in terms of hit points and armor and all that kind of stuff for a troll. But I would remove the regenerated powers. I don't think these trolls can regenerate anymore because of their desiccated state. Now, if they happen to be encountered in um, a freak rainstorm in the desert... Uh, or near an oasis where they might have been soaking in a pool then i would give them that re- regenerative power but uh also to make up for that loss of regeneration i would say they're not particularly susceptible to fire um even though they are uh well their tissues are so dense right and and while they're dried out they're also kind of um withered into like tough uh y- you know Uh, Well, I just don't think they're particularly susceptible to fire. You can change that if you want. Their instinct is to tend the forest. Uh, Their moves are cover large distances regardless of weather, uh, relentlessly stalk interlopers, and try to communicate without a voice. Here's the interesting thing. They just want people to leave. Um, They don't have a voice, so they'll make weird hand motions and just kind of get uncomfortably close, which will often panic a party. If the party can find some way to talk to the Sand Trolls, the Sand Trolls will just ask them to leave and uh, just and, you know, rudimentary mind speech or however they're talking, try to get across the message that they want them to go. Um, They don't really get more sophisticated than that. If they get frustrated, if they can't communicate with a party, then they'll fight. They'll uh, try to drive them off with physical violence. So that's Hook Sand Trolls. Maybe not the most inventive thing in the world, but um, I think they're cool because they don't necessarily remind you of trolls typical D&D trolls, and they're in a different environment, and they make kind of neat desert creatures.
1: Those are great. I love the opportunity for nonverbal communication with them, and I really like how evocative they are. They really bring this desert environment to life. And speaking of communication, you can reach us through our email at monsterbrotherspodcast at com. You can always check our show notes at themonsterbrothers.blogspot.com, and you can call us through the Anchor app. And don't forget, we take suggestions. If you have a monster you'd like us to talk about, send us a note. Thanks goes out to my awesome son, Derek Howard, who created our theme song.